I'm going to tell you guys a story to start off. It's the story of Martin Pistorius. Martin Pistorius was 12 years old when a mysterious illness began slowly robbing him of his ability to walk, talk, or even communicate on any level. Eventually, he basically became a vegetable. He couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, he couldn't communicate. All he could do was sit there, and there was no hope for a cure. His condition left the doctors confused and his family in a depression. His parents were told, take your sick home, or take your sick son home because he doesn't have much time to live but actually he just kept on living. He didn't die. He survived, but he just was in this coma vegetative state. The first two years, Martin was in a coma-like condition. He was motionless, unresponsive, and utterly unconscious. But some two years into his ordeal, his mind actually began to wake up. Unfortunately, his mind was the only thing that woke up. So even though his mind was working, he couldn't talk, he couldn't walk, he couldn't communicate. So in the inside, he knew what was going on, but everyone around him still thought he was in a coma. So imagine that, just lying on your bed, paralyzed, not being able to say anything. You know what's going on, but no one else knows. What a horrible situation. His lowest moment came when his mom got so tired of taking care of him, she heard him say in the other room, I hope he dies. So full of despair, his mom actually ended up trying to take her own life and commit suicide, but she did not succeed. As for his father, for the next decade, 10 years, his father's life consisted of getting up early every morning, driving his helpless son to a special care center, and then picking him up eight hours later and driving him home where he'd be bathed, fed, and put to bed. But Martin remained trapped in a frozen body. He knew who he was and where he was and understood he'd been robbed of a real life. Suddenly, after more than a decade of imprisonment within his own body, Martin all of a sudden began to feel again. And slowly and painstakingly, movement followed and then became, or, or then what happened next was he had to go into heavy rehabilitation. In his late 20s, he learned to use a computer to speak and soon he got a government job. Then he graduated from college with a degree in computer science, started his own web design company and married his wife Joanna in 2008. Now you might say, this story sounds absolutely crazy. I thought it sounds crazy too. Sometimes when I think things sound crazy, I, check, I go to fact-checking sites like Snopes.com, which is good because there's so much fake news being shared right now. I don't know if you guys know if you've been on Facebook, but like fake, just so many fake news stories. Trump's an alien. Hillary has three arms. Like stuff like that. It's like, what? So fake news stories are all over the place. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your grandparents because I can guarantee they've shared it. Um, <laughs> So Snopes.com is a fact-checking site, so I went on and they said this. Martin Pistorius' story may sound far-fetched, but the National Institute of Neurological Disorders um, and Strokes states that locked-in syndrome is actually a real disorder. Locked-in syndrome is a rare neurological disorder characterized by complete paralysis of voluntary muscles and all parts of the body except for the control of eye movement. It may result from traumatic brain injury, disease of the circulatory system, diseases that destroy destroy the myelin sheath underneath the nerve cells or medication overdose. Individuals with locked-in syndrome are conscious and can think and reason, but are unable to speak or move. The disorder leaves individuals completely mute and paralyzed, totally 
helpless. And I want to ask you guys today, have you ever felt totally hopeless? Have you ever felt paralyzed by your fear and doubt, where maybe on the outside everything looks okay, but on the inside you are struggling because of circumstances going on in your life? You know, currently that's exactly where we find Jesus's followers. Jesus has been crucified. He has been nailed to a cross. So imagine, if you're one of Jesus' followers, what has he been saying for the last three years? He's been saying, I'm king of the Jews. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom movement is happening. So what are his followers thinking? Jesus is going to become the king. Did he become the king in their eyes? No, he died on a cross. So to them, their king is dead. Their movement is dead. Everything they've been dreaming of and hoping for is dead. So they have no hope. If you've been in that situation today, this message this morning is for you because this message is a message of hope. Today, we're going to learn about how we as Christians are called to hold on to the new hope. So we're going to start in John chapter 19. We're going to go to verse 38. If you want to follow along, the video will be on the screen. After this, Joseph, who was from the town of Arimathea, asked Pilate if he could take Jesus' body. Joseph was a follower of Jesus, but in secret because he was afraid of the Jewish authorities. Pilate told him he could have the body, so Joseph went and took it away. Nicodemus, who at first had gone to see Jesus at night, went with Joseph, taking with him about 100 pounds of spices, a mixture of myrrh and aloes. The two men took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the spices according to the Jewish custom of preparing a body for burial. There was a garden in the place where Jesus had been put to death, and in it there was a new tomb where no one had ever been buried. Since it was the day before the Sabbath, and because the tomb was close by, they placed Jesus' body there. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the entrance. She went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. They have taken the Lord from the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. Then Peter and the other disciple went to the tomb. The two of them were running, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and saw the linen cloths, but he did not go in. Behind him came Simon Peter, and he went straight into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the cloth which had been around Jesus' head. It was not lying with the linen cloths, but was rolled up by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture, which said that he must rise from death. Then the disciples went back home. Mary stood crying outside the tomb. While she was still crying, she bent over and looked in the tomb. saw two angels there, dressed in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head, the other at the feet. Woman, why are you crying? They asked her. They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. Then she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Who was it that you were looking for? She thought he was the gardener. So she said to him, If you took him away, sir, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary. She turned toward him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni. This means teacher. Do not hold on to me, 
because I have not yet gone back up to the father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to him who is my father and their father, my God and their God. So Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and related to them what he had told her. All right. So today's message, like I said, message of hope, it's all about the resurrection. What? It's not Easter. Yeah, I know. We can talk about the, like, we, we shouldn't just talk about the resurrection during Easter. We should talk about it other times, too. So here's what's going on. The followers of Jesus, we've got Peter and John and Mary Magdalene, they see an empty tomb. What do they think when they see it? Do they think, oh, Jesus has risen from the dead? No, they think he's been taken. Someone broke in. They are filled with fear and doubt, and they're not sure what to believe. It says that they still didn't understand the scriptures. They didn't understand all the messages that Jesus said about him rising, about how he needed to die. Did Peter and John run back proclaiming Jesus is alive? No, they stumbled out of the tomb dazed and confused. Um, They're quite uncertain. They didn't understand this was always Jesus's plan. In fact, one time when Jesus was talking to a crowd, he said, you know, guys, I'm gonna have to die. The Son of Man is going to have to die and be raised. And you know what Peter said? Peter's like, "Uh, Jesus, I don't think you know what you're talking about. You're not going to die. You'll never die. And Jesus actually is so serious about his plan, he actually says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Imagine if Jesus said that to you. Imagine if I said that to you. Imagine if your parents or your friends, maybe your parents have said that to you. Has anyone's parents ever been like, get behind me, Satan? Anybody? That feels like, yeah, that's like a Christian parent thing to do. Total joke. So... The disciples had their own beliefs. Did you guys know that the disciples actually had a reasonable reason to doubt the, rev- the, the resurrection? Did you guys know that Jesus was basically asking the disciples to believe the unbelievable? Let me explain. It may surprise you, but the Jews, so basically our spiritual ancestors, the Jews, they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in it. Um, They believed, they had some different beliefs about the afterlife. They believed that basically when you die, your soul goes to live on basically as a ghost, but your body isn't resurrected. When you die, your body goes in the ground and becomes a part of the earth. Um, They believed that your spirit went on to some spirit realm where you awaited for God's future plan. So... Basically, the disciples had no categories for what was going on. It would be like, just to put in perspective, it'd be like if I told you as your youth pastor, guys, if you follow Jesus, you'll grow wings. You'll grow two more arms, and you'll be able to play every instrument perfectly. If I said that on a Sunday, would you be like, yes, yes, bro, I believe it. No, you'd be like, we need to get a new youth pastor. Like, that's not in the Bible. This guy's strange. So just so you understand, what Jesus was telling them was something that for the Jews, it was unbelievable. They doubted Jesus saying that he would rise from the dead. And even today, many doubt the resurrection. Many claim Christianity is just a fairy tale. The the point I want to make to you guys today is To hold on to the new hope, we have to first deal with our unbelief. If we're going to hold on to the new hope, we have to put down our unbelief. That's what we need to do. So 
Knowledge is power. You guys have heard that saying, knowledge is power. So let's consider today, we're going to look at some evidence for the resurrection. Now, there was a theory going around that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It was his disciples. They took the body. Obviously, they rolled away the giant stone. They broke in and they stole his body. I want to show you guys an awesome video by Paula Fredrickson from Boston University. She's a historical researcher, and she put together this amazing video that gives us some solid concrete evidence for the resurrection. So let's check that out. Paula Fredrickson, Boston University. I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say, and then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I don't know what they saw. But I know that as a historian, they must have seen something. Is there any reason to believe that an extraordinary event like the resurrection actually happened? We might be encouraged to know that since the first Christians made the claim that the resurrection was Jesus' physical body coming to life and leaving an actual, literal tomb, as opposed to simply a spiritual belief that Jesus had come back again as a ghost or was alive in their hearts as a memory, it can be studied in the same way other historical events can be. Like Hannibal's invasion, complete with the elephants, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo, or the Broncos being crushed by the Seahawks in Super Bowl 48. Historical research is well respected, even though, unlike scientific research, you cannot place historical events under a microscope or contain them to a lab. Historians put reports together from written sources and eyewitnesses or anything else that was known from the time and place of the events to reach reasonable conclusions about what may have actually happened. While many pieces of evidence can be used to point to the reality of Jesus' resurrection, we will focus on three. Number one, the early church exploded on the scene of the ancient world with the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead as their central proclamation. Many movements are gradual in building momentum, and when it comes to larger-than-life, legendary or miraculous characteristics claimed by these movements about their leaders, those ideas usually take decades and sometimes even centuries to develop. From what we know about Christianity, the claim that Jesus rose again from the dead was made from the very start, serving as this new religion's central idea. A passage that is thought to reflect the very earliest Christian belief, a founding Christian leader writes, I want to remind you of the good news I proclaimed to you. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose again from the dead. Within a very short time, this movement had taken the ancient world by storm, built on the testimony of those who claimed they had seen Jesus alive after death. There is every indication that they must have seen something. Number two, the earliest followers of Jesus claimed to be eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection and went to their deaths proclaiming it. Now, we all know people die for their beliefs. That does not make their beliefs true. But one thing it does for all of them, it is a very strong indicator that they believed what they were saying. It's been said liars make lousy martyrs. The early followers of Jesus claimed first to have seen Jesus die and raise again from the dead. Their deaths are an indication that they certainly believed they had. They must have seen something. Number three, Jesus' resurrection was seen by his earliest followers and friends. But in addition, a very unusual thing happened around the same time. Two men who were self-described skeptics, even enemies of the idea of Jesus' divinity, 
turned from their skepticism to claim that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. The first was Jesus' own brother, James. Historians are confident that we have good information regarding James, and we know he began as a skeptic over Jesus' claims to divinity. From what we know, he appears to have thought Jesus was decidedly not the Son of God, but also that his brother was a little on the kooky side, which, if you have a brother, you may be able to relate to. But somehow, James makes a complete turnaround in his view of Jesus, and the explanation he gives is the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. He must have seen something. Then there was a man named Saul of Tarsus. He not only did not believe in Jesus, but when the news about him began to travel, he believed this new movement was a dangerous and destructive idea. He took it upon himself to oppose believers, even violently. He had people killed and put in prison just for believing in the resurrection. Then suddenly, Saul does one of the most amazing 180s in the history of 180s. He goes from sworn enemy of the new faith to one of its most passionate and vocal promoters. What happened? According to him, the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. He went to his death, never backing off that claim. He must have seen something. Atheist New Testament scholar Jed Ludman. It must be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. So good, right? Is anyone else encouraged by that? Yeah, any, just me? Yeah, okay, a few people. I think it's awesome. There's so much evidence. I have so much confidence in the resurrection of Jesus because to me, so many things just don't add up if it's not true. Like, for instance, in the time of Jesus, there was many Messiah movements. Basically, there was a lot of Jewish men who stood up and said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king of the Jews. They formed an army around them. They tried to overthrow the government, but these leaders were all killed and executed. And when they were killed and executed, their movement collapsed because their disciples were scared. The opposite happens with Jesus' disciples. The only reason that they would continue to fight for Jesus' cause is if they knew that he was true. Why would they fight and die for something they didn't believe? Have you guys ever heard of Watergate? Raise your hand if you know what Watergate is. It's kind of a confusing political thing. So in 1972, you guys ever heard of President uh, Nixon? I am not a crook. You know that one? Um, President Nixon was one of our presidents who got, I think, impeached or, or, or fired from his position. Um, Basically, what happened was um, during the time of his reelection in 1972, when he was going to get reelected for a second term, members of his team broke into the Democratic National Convention headquarters and they stole documents from their opponents and they planted microphones in the rooms to record what people were saying so that they could scheme against them. They were caught and they lied about it. They all said, Oh, that's not true. We would not do it. So the connection. If you're wondering what's the connection between Nixon and Jesus here, is 12 men from Nixon's team went on the stand in court to testify, and they all came in lying, but after they were all interrogated, 12 men couldn't keep their story straight. Some said, oh, you know, that's a lie, Nixon would never do that, and then other people cracked under the pressure, and they ratted the other ones out. 
12 men couldn't keep their story straight. And I think that's about true. I don't know if you've ever been caught in a lie with some of your friends, but uh, you know when the adults, the teachers, some of you guys have actually been on the other end of this with me, and it's not fun. It's not fun for me, and it's not fun for you. Um, What happens? We start grilling one another, and before you know it, your friends are lying, and then other friends are ratting each other out because they don't want to get in trouble. It's no good. So what happens with the 12 disciples? They are persecuted, captured, interrogated, persecuted, crucified, boiled alive, dragged through the streets by horses, stretched out on the rack, pierced with spears, stabbed by swords, and they never stop telling the story of Jesus. You'd think that just one of them, like Thomas, would be like, I always doubted it. But no, they all stay true. They must have seen something. Listen, they had nothing to gain from lying. Following Jesus brought them a life of poverty, sharing with one another. It wasn't like a religion where they gained anything. It wasn't like they were these mega preachers who they were having people donate to them so that they could get rich. No, following Jesus basically meant you were going to be a homeless beggar, sharing everything you barely owned with the rest of the church, and your life was in constant danger. Why would someone lie for that? Would you lie for that? Heck no, I would not lie for that. Judas didn't even believe it. Judas, remember, Judas didn't believe in Jesus, so what does Judas do? He sells him out. So think about the other disciples. They must have believed it. Judas was the only one. Why would the rest follow Jesus if they truly, if they knew it was fake, if they were the ones who stole the body and they had nothing to gain from it? Why would the others lie for something unless they believed it was true? Here's another reason. Back in those times, women weren't believed. Feminine rights were way down in those times. Women were basically treated as second-class citizens and property. It was not good. And back then, a woman's testimony was not believed. A woman could not testify in court because basically the uh, very sexist, very misogynistic men of the time, anytime a woman would say anything, they'd just be like, oh, she's crazy. She just has female hysteria. I don't know if your brothers, girls have ever said that you have female hysteria when you're trying to say something, but it's a very demeaning thing to say. So what is, who does Jesus give his testimony to? Who's the first person that receives it? It's a woman. Like, this woman, Mary, is given the gospel, the good news to go and carry it. Jesus has a very high view of women. Now, for the disciples, think about it. If this was a lie, if they're writing the story, why would they write a woman into the story? They would have written in Peter if it was their lie. They would have said, oh, Peter saw the tomb. Peter came and proclaimed the good news. But they said it was a woman, totally countercultural. It just gives more evidence to the fact that it was true. Why would they include it if it wasn't? Why would, why would they include their failures? All throughout the gospel, you see their failures. You see stories of Peter saying stupid things, insert foot into mouth. You see people betraying Jesus. You see the movement basically falling apart. They write in this story about how Jesus holds a prayer meeting and the disciples basically fall asleep. And then when the soldiers show up, they run away like cowards. If you were writing a history of your movement, would you include those details? I wouldn't. I'd be like, and then I was so brave and I stood with Jesus the whole time and I stabbed 50 soldiers. Like if I was just making it up, I would, I would really make myself look good. These guys make themselves look like idiots because this was the true story that was happening, and they had so much respect for Jesus, they were like, we can't change any of this. Peter's like, please, please, John, don't write that detail in. John's like, no, no, sorry, this is going in. It's the truth. It's what happened. Now listen, most secular scholars acknowledge, like non-Christian secular scholars, acknowledge that Jesus was a historical person who died on a cross and was buried. Listen to this. 
This is from Paul Althus. He says, The resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been an established fact. So think about it. Like, all these Christians are going around saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has risen from the dead. Like, don't you think if he hadn't really, there would have been some historian who was like, nope, went to the tomb. He was still there. These guys are liars. But there's no record. There's no writing from that time where anyone wrote, yeah, I went to the tomb and I checked and Jesus was still in there. Those disciples are a bunch of phonies. The gospel message spread. Think about it. Think about how Christianity is the biggest faith movement in the entire world. For it to spread the way you saw in the video on that map, for it to spread so quickly around the world or even just around Israel, it would have to be true that Jesus wasn't in that tomb. We know his tomb was empty. But even after Peter and John see the tomb, they're still not convinced. The only thing that makes the rapid spread of Christianity make sense is if they really saw him alive later on. And that's what we're learning about next week. Jesus appears to them and they see him. But right now they're in a place of doubt. Right now they're in a place of doubt. And if you're in a place of doubt, I just want to share with you another video because it totally blesses me. And it really lays the case for why our faith is so much different from all the other faiths out there. So let's take a look. How other religions began. Someone had a private idea about God. Or someone had a private dream about God. Or someone had a private encounter with an angel. Then that single someone the rest of the world. This makes other religions impossible to verify because there are no eyewitnesses of the prime event. How Christianity started. Jesus spent three years doing miracles and teaching publicly. Jesus was executed publicly. Jesus was buried and rose from a public tomb, publicly. Jesus showed that he was alive, publicly. Then it was the public that told the rest of the world. Christianity is the world's most testable religion. So good. So much good stuff today. I'm loving just learning about this myself. Again, I've been watching these videos all week. I want to shift gears, though, because I hopefully, if you're here today and you've ever doubted the resurrection, hopefully you have some good thinking material to start considering the truth behind it. But I want to shift gears. I want to talk about this idea of what Mary went through. Think about Mary. Mary Magdalene. If you don't know who Mary Magdalene was, she was a lady, a woman at the time, who went through a lot of hard things. Some people believe that she dabbled in prostitution. Um, there's a story about where a prostitute comes and washes Jesus' feet and she just repents from her sins. A lot of people think that was Mary. Um, but what we do know is that Mary was freed from free demons. She was demon-possessed by seven demons and she's just writhing and foaming at the mouth in front of Jesus and Jesus takes pity on her and compassion and he sets her free. I don't know about you but I know some people who've been set free from drugs or alcohol abuse or sexual abuse by Jesus. These demons are just so much of just this 
like crazy representation of the sin that we see. Seven demons inside of her, and Jesus sets her free. So she's loyal to Jesus. She loves Jesus. The Bible tells us that at the cross, she was there with Jesus' mother Mary, weeping at the cross. Now she's weeping at the tomb. She shows up, and she's heartbroken because Jesus was everything to her. Imagine your whole life, you're possessed by demons. You don't have any control over yourself or your body. You're basically a slave to Satan, And Jesus shows up and sets her free. Do you think she was just so grateful? Do you think Jesus meant everything to her? Yes, absolutely. This woman was so committed to Christ. I can't imagine how she must have felt watching Jesus suffer and bleed on the cross. And now we find her at the tomb, and and she is just going through so much. But then angels show up. And what do they say? They say, why are you weeping, Mary? Mary, what is wrong? Why are you sad? And she says, they took my Lord away. They took him, and I don't know where to find him. Do you ever find yourself there? God's working miracles right in front of you. There's angels right in front of her, (laughs) these glowing, majestic creatures, and she's still doubting. Do you ever find yourself in that place where God is working all around you, but because of what you're going through in that moment, you've got tunnel vision, and all you can see is that trial right in front of you? And then what happens? Scripture tells us in uh, John chapter 20, verse 15, she sees Jesus in the corner, but she thinks he's the gardener. It's pretty funny. I don't know what he was doing that made her think he was a gardener, like planting a tulip or something. (laughs) He's just, I'm just Jesus, I'm going to plant a tulip. But she sees him, and she thinks that he's the gardener. So she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And verse 16, Jesus reveals himself, and he says, Mary, and she turns, and she sees, and she cries out, Rabbi, which means teacher, in that moment, just the joy. Imagine, you thought Jesus was dead, and now he's alive, the person who freed you, the person who rescued you, just the joy she must have felt in that moment, and and how does Jesus respond? It's very interesting. Verse 17, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Do not hold on to me. In other translations, he says, do not touch me. Wow, that's, that's interesting. I was just reading this, and I was like, there's something really profound about this. Imagine you just are so in love with Jesus, you thought he was dead, he appears in front of you, you hold on to him, and he says, don't hold on to me, don't touch me. I mean, how could she not? How could she not? He was dead, and now he's alive, the person who meant everything to her. What a thing to ask. Why would Jesus ask that? Why would Jesus say, don't touch me? It's very interesting, is it not? Scholars have debated this. They've speculated. It's very interesting. There's a really weak explanation where some scholars are like, well, it was obviously because she was a woman and no Jewish man would want a woman to touch her or touch him. So lame. Like, those scholars need to go back to Bible college. That's the dumbest explanation I've ever heard. Jesus was always showing people love and touching people and showing people. Like, Jesus had such a high view of women. If you're a girl here today, you need to know Jesus was pretty much the pioneer of rights for women. He was the one who said, they are equal to men. I created them in my image. Jesus makes his first messenger, the first person to proclaim the good news of Jesus' resurrection, was a woman. Jesus had such a high value for women. So that's, that's a lame explanation. Other people thought his body was still like transitioning from its like 
dead body to like its holy body. So he's like, don't touch me. I am transforming. <laughs> like, I don't think that's it either. Um, another one they said was like, oh, Jesus didn't want sin cooties. Like, he's like, don't touch me thinner. I've got a holy body and you're contaminating me. That's, no, that's not either because what does Jesus do in the next chapter? He goes up to Thomas and he's like, Thomas, <laughs> stick your hands or stick your fingers in the holes of my hands. <laughs> like, so obviously Jesus doesn't care about being touched by humans. So what's the real reason? I, I prayed about it. I studied it. I could be wrong, but this is, this is kind of where I'm at with this. I think Jesus is making a statement. Let's read it again. Let's read it again. Verse 17, Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have yet, or I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus is making a statement. He's saying, Mary, don't hold on to false hopes. Now, you might hear that and be like, Aaron, that sounds crazy because she's holding on to Jesus, and Jesus is a good hope, not a false hope. So what are you talking about? Well, here's the deal. Mary was holding on to her hope that Jesus was back in the flesh for good, which was a false hope, because Jesus didn't come to hang out in his body form again. What? Think about it. Think about it. Jesus was dead. Now he's alive right in front of her. She clings to him. Mary's like, I don't want to lose you again, Lord. You're here. I want you with me. I want to hang with you, Jesus. I want to spend time with you. I want to eat food like we used to. I want you to sit around the fire and tell me Bible stories, Jesus. I want you to teach me. Jesus, she's holding on to him. She's clinging on to him like never before. And Jesus says, Mary, don't hold on to me because that's a false hope. Listen, Mary, I've got something better. Mary, I am going to the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I am leaving with you my Holy Spirit. Now listen, guys, we can do this. We can hold on to our plans and even convince ourselves that they're God's plans. I've seen this so many times. There's something I really want to do, and I'm like, this is God's plan. This is God's plan for my life, when really it's just something that I've really thought about and dreamed at a lot. Maybe you're in that place. Maybe it's like you're thinking about your future job, and it's like, this job is everything, and I'm going to have this career. And maybe that's not God's plan, and maybe you're holding on to this false hope. Maybe it's college, a certain school. I've got to get into the school, or everything I've done is wasted. Maybe it's like, it's that boy. And if it's not that boy, then my life is over. <laughs> or it's that girl. That was me. I was the sad chump who had a crush on a girl from second grade to 10th grade. Pathetic. It's just terrible. I held on to this false hope. Guys, listen. His plans are always better than our plans. Mary didn't want to lose him again. She's holding on. She's like, Jesus, don't you ever leave me. Jesus, don't you ever leave me. Excuse you. Jesus, Jesus, don't you ever leave me. And you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Mary... You're holding on to a false hope in me being here in the flesh. I've got a better plan. I'm going to give you my spirit, and now I will always be with you. In my body form, we can only hang when I'm in town. We can only hang when I'm at your house with your brothers and sisters. With my spirit, I can be with you 24-7, Mary. She longed for this unbroken fellowship with Jesus, and Jesus is saying, once I go to the Father, you'll have it. You'll be able to have perfect fellowship with me. So she says, let go of me, Mary, because you're putting faith in a false hope. The real hope is that the king has come. The spirit is here. So let go, Mary, and go and tell the disciples. Let go, Mary. Stop holding on to these things that you think are my plans because I've got a better plan. And right now for you, Mary, my plan is for you to drop everything and go and preach the gospel. 
Go and tell the disciples there's work to be done, Mary. There's good news. I see in this a great parallel, guys. Christians today are scared of the world. They're scared. Maybe you've seen this with the older generation. Just the world is a bad, scary place. It's bad. All those non-Christians are bad. We just need to wait till the rapture happens, and then we'll be safe. It's just this idea. And don't get me wrong. I believe in the rapture. I believe Jesus is coming back. The difference is I believe we have a job to do. Our hope is not in, Lord, keep us safe from all the bad people out there. That's not the hope we have. Our hope is that God already saved us. It's not God keep us safe. It's you already made us safer than we could ever be. We're indestructible. We have bulletproof souls. If the Lord is with us, who can be against us? So cling to Jesus, not in some false hope that your life is just for you to hide out until Jesus comes back. He has so much work for you to do. It's not God save me from this wicked world. It's not God keep the darkness away. If that's you here today in your whole life, or maybe right now you're just in a place where it's like, Lord, keep the darkness away. Listen, Jesus is saying, let go of that false hope. You're holding on to a false idea about me. He'd say to you, I didn't die to keep you safe from being uncomfortable. I died to save this world from death. I He would say, let go of this hope that I will keep you safe from darkness because reality is because of my death, it's the darkness that needs to be kept safe from you. You are dangerous to the darkness because of Jesus. The darkness is scared of you because you have the light of the world, the Holy Spirit in you. And can the darkness ever beat light? Have you ever turned on a flashlight and all of a sudden the darkness was like, get get back in there, get back in there. The darkness like pushed your light back into your flashlight. That never happens. Dark can't beat light as long as the light doesn't give up on shining. You can turn off the flashlight. You can. But you don't have to. Light always defeats the darkness. And honestly, guys, the church in America has often given up shining outside of our church doors. A lot of churches, it's all about just make sure we have a service every day of the week so that our Christians can come and continue to hear about Jesus. And we have lots of events and potlucks and home fellowships and barbecues. And it's all for us. It's all just keep us safe from all the bad things out there. When Jesus is saying, listen, you go to church, yes, because you need to get filled up with light so that you can go back out into the darkness and kick some demon butt so you can totally take background for the kingdom of God. It's not the gospel of safety and security. Guys, hope is not in safety and security. Hope is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's basically saying, if all you had was Jesus in this life, like if if all there is is just hope that Jesus was a guy who healed some people and said some good things, our lives are pathetic because he died. But then he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's saying, listen, we have hope because Jesus raised and because he raised, now we have hope that we don't have to die and that we will live forever. So we talked about putting down our unbelief. And if you still don't believe in any of this stuff, let's talk because I want to challenge you to let go of these unbeliefs and to seek truth. We've talked about let go of false hopes. If you're here today and you just have this false hope about who Jesus is and what he does, let go because today God wants to say to you, hold on to the new hope. 
Guys, the resurrection brings so much hope. The resurrection changes everything. In fact, Paul says in the Bible that basically without the, revel- or without the resurrection, our faith is meaningless. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then all of it's pointless. He's just another dead religious leader. But if Jesus has risen from the dead, that changes everything. Chuck Swindoll says this, The benefits of the resurrection are innumerable. To list a few, our illnesses don't seem nearly so final. Our fears fade and lose their grip. Our grief over those who have gone on is diminished. Our desire to press on in spite of obstacles is rejuvenated. Our identity as Christians is strengthened as we stand in the lengthened shadows of saints down through centuries who have always answered back in one voice, He is risen indeed. If the resurrection is true, then Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, that changes everything. Now, what's the result of the resurrection? The result of the resurrection is the defeat of sin and death. In the Bible, there's this prophecy in Isaiah 25, 7 through 8. And it says, it's speaking of the Messiah, which we know is Jesus, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. What's he talking about? It's death. It's sin, which causes death and hell in our lives, and then it's ultimate death, where we die and go to hell forever, and we die eternally forever. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, basically like a foggy cloud, this veil of death covered the entire world, and everyone died. No matter what nation you went to, no matter how good a person you were, everyone died and everyone suffered. So what does the prophecy say? He will swallow up death forever. Ever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It's so good. Guys, we look forward to a hope of one day no more sadness, no more divorce, no more pain, no more abuse, no more racism, no more violence. Guys, we have so much to look forward to in the final resurrection when Jesus comes back again. Now, you might be here and you might be thinking, okay, wait, if Jesus defeated death, then why do people still die? Listen, Jesus defeated death in the sense that death has no more final power for those who believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, then the power of death has no hold on you. If you get hit by a truck today, guess what? You live on forever in the kingdom of God. From pages one through three of the Bible, we have to understand God had a plan. Remember, think back to chapters one, two, and three of the Bible. What's God's plan? His plan is his world and his family. God creates the world and he says it's good. He creates his people and says it is good. But then what happens? Sin and death enter the scene. So did God's plan change? Was God like, oh, plan B? No, what's God's plan? God's plan has always been the same. His world and his people. But when sin entered, what happened? We became dead, and the world became dead. And we see all around that people are dying, and the world is dying. What's the solution? It's the resurrection. The Bible says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. A new creation. The old things have passed. Your past life, your past sins, the things you did five years ago, the things you did ten years ago, the things you did yesterday. You are a new creation every day in Christ. What an amazing thing. The Bible also talks about, in the end, heaven and earth being made new, a new heaven and a new earth renewed. And this is what I think. This is so cool. I I love this imagery. I was thinking about this. I was trying to think about a way to explain it. 
Because they, they, we're kind of caught in this weird space and time where Jesus says the kingdom of God is already, it's here, but not yet. It's not final. It's, it's here, but it's not the final deal. So what does that mean? I like to think of it this way. The resurrection, when Jesus, okay, let me put it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the blackest night of sin and death. But something else died besides Jesus. It was the kingdom of darkness and its rule. So the resurrection is the beginning of the sunrise of the new kingdom. Does that make sense? It's the beginning of the sunrise of the new kingdom. Now, what happens as the sun begins to rise? When the sun begins to rise, is night still in control? Is it? No. Night's still kind of there. There's still some dark shadows, but the sun has assumed control of the sky. Now, as the sun is rising, there's different points in a sunrise where the sun's not completely up, so there's still some darkness, there's still some dark shadows, but the sun is in control, and you can bet, have you ever doubted when you saw the sunrise, were you ever like, I don't know if it's going to make it, I don't know if it's going to get all the way up, I don't know, it might go back down, like, no, when the sun begins to rise, you're like, absolutely, the sun will rise, I'm going to stare at it, like, just don't do that. So, I hope that makes sense, the parallel. Right now, what are we in? We're in the sunrise of the new kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus will bring to us when he finally returns. So is there still some night? Yes, there's still some darkness. And right now we see a lot of it in our country. A lot of hate, a lot of fear. It's everywhere. It's freaking me out. (laughs) But don't freak out because the sun will rise completely. Death has been defeated. It has no hold over us. Sin no longer enslaves people who have walked away from their chains and into the arms of Jesus. We are in an amazing place in history. It's the hope of the new life. Now, I want to show you guys this awesome video by a guy named Jim James. I've showed you guys stuff from him before. He's in a band called Monsters of Folk and My Morning Jacket. And uh, I just love him. He's like a kind, he's, he's, he's a seeker. You know, he, he believes in God, but he kind of drifts into other stuff. You know, he's not like a total Christian yet. Not really a total Jesus follower, but he believes in God. and He was raised in the church. And in his songs, there's these biblical themes that always come out. And I love that. I love learning from non-Christians personally, because I believe that God's spirit can show us his life in all types of art. So I want to show you guys this song. It's really short. It's like a one minute video, but just it's, check out this guy's beautiful voice. Hey, open the door. I want a new life. Hey, and here's what's more. I want a new life. A new life. Let's get one thing clear There's much more stardust When you're near I think I'm really being sincere I want a new life Mm, A new life With you
So anyone like that guy's voice? It's pretty, right? It's like a voice of an angel. No, you don't like it, Brantz? Sorry, I called you out. Dude, he, he has the voice of an angel. It's so majestic. So Jim James, or Yim James, as he calls himself, <laughs> Yim James, that's his artist name. Uh, Jim James, or Yim James, he wrote that little, beautiful little ditty at the start of a new relationship. He meets this girl. He went through a really rough patch where he, like, kind of went a little bit crazy at one of his concerts, and he, like, fell off the stage and, like, hurt himself. And he was, like, totally in the hospital for a while. And then he meets this girl, and um, it's the start of this new relationship. He's coming out of this bad place, and, and now he's in that puppy love phase. And so he writes this song, and he goes, Hey, babe, open the door to the new world, because I want a new life with you. There's much more stardust when you're near. I love that. Stardust. And, it, guys, because it reminds me of my relationship with the Lord. It really does. Guys, when you follow Jesus, it is the door to a new world. It's like the start of a new relationship. It's like a marriage. It's, it's amazing and beautiful all at once. Robert Flatt says, the resurrection gives my life meaning and direction and the opportunity to start over no matter what the circumstances. Guys, we need to live a resurrected life, a life where just every day we're in love with Jesus. Every day, you start your day and say, Lord, open the door. I want a new life with you. It's not just like, oh, camp is here. Time to rededicate my life to the Lord for the 13th time. Altar call. I'm going down. It's going to be different this time. Oh, man. That did not work out. When's the next camp? I'm a sinner. I don't know if you've been there, but I have. Why not start every day? Lord, I want a new start with you today. Dying to self. That's what we need. Guys, the last thing I'm going to talk about is just what the resurrection means as far as the kingdom goes. The resurrection does not just signify that, hey, when you die, like, you'll go to heaven, fluffy cloud land. No. The resurrection is all about what God is resurrecting right now and leading up to the future when we're in the heavenly kingdom. Um, N.T. Wright has this to say. He's a, a scholar professor type guy, but I love what he says here. The resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the, de de the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom reality has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're invited to belong to it. I love that. Guys, I've said this before, what you do now affects eternity. Every small act of obedience is a building brick in the kingdom of God. So what are some practical ways? I'm just going to throw down as we close some really practical ways that you guys can follow Jesus and live for his kingdom. One, repent. If you're here and you're in sin, you are holding back the kingdom. You're holding back the resurrection work that God wants to do in your life, your family, your school. If you are just living in sin, listen, God is merciful, but don't stand in the way of what he wants to do. Repent, turn from your sin. If you're here today and you're sinning, seriously, I'm inviting you today. You don't need me. We don't need to talk about it. If you want to talk about it, I'll pray for you, but you don't need me. Just you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, I want to repent. I want to return from this sin. I don't want to hold back what you're doing. Number two, serve and obey. Look for every opportunity you can to serve. If you've got musical ability, lead worship for junior high or children's ministry. If you can watch a baby, show up early for first service. Oh, that's crazy. I know. It, I have to get up at five every Sunday. I know it's hard, but 
go into the nursery during first service and watch some babies for the kingdom of God. Mow the lawn for your dad. If it's his job normally, surprise him and do it for him. Wash those dishes for your mom. Help your brother and sister with their homework. Give up an hour of TV time or video game time or phone scrolling endlessly through Instagram. Is there anything new on this? No, there's not. It's all meaningless. So give up some of your time and serve somebody. Help somebody. Love somebody. That, that's, and then obey. When God tells you to do something, you do it. Number three, love. I was at uh, FCA over at um, RBV, and they were talking about how hard it is to love your enemies. I was telling them one of my personal goals in life is to have no enemies. Like, just no one I'm an enemy with. Just, I get along with everybody, and if I have problems with someone, we talk about it, and we deal with it, and we figure it out. And the kids I was talking to were like, that's crazy. I have, like, like 17 enemies and, like, 20 frenemies. <laughs> like, just all this drama they were telling me about in their school. And it's like, guys, God has called us to love our enemies, to love our friends, to love our family, and to love even those who hurt us. That is kingdom work. Number four, intentional relationships. Here's what I mean. If you're sitting next to someone today and you would say they are a really good friend, but you guys never talk about Jesus outside of church or small groups, you never talk about what's God doing in your life? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Text, here's a verse. Do it. Be intentional. Like, don't just be friends at church and then be like sinner flesh friends outside. That's a sinner flesh friends trademark. Don't do it. Have intentional relationships for the kingdom. Five, have intimacy with God. If you're here today and you're not spending time with God on a regular basis, and guys, I'm not one of those legalists who's like, every day, you wake up at five, you read your Bible for 20 hours, there's like, I don't even know how that would work. Um, Yeah, if you do that, you should be the one teaching, not me, because I don't read it for 20 hours. But intimacy with God, I can't even talk, intimacy with God, you spend time with God, find a couple times during your week where you're connecting with God on a deeper level than just hearing me talk at you. That's kingdom work. And, and six, finally, is justice. Now, if you guys have ever heard about social justice, that's a really hot topic term right now. It's kind of a, a worldly political term in the sense. Um, social justice, it, it gets really political, and there's a lot of opinion on who deserves it and who doesn't. This is a really easy way to break down kingdom justice, not social American idea of justice. What's kingdom justice? What does Jesus say? Golden rule, love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? Jesus says, pretty much everybody, like your enemies, your next door neighbors, the people who hate you, the people who love you. Just treat everyone better than you treat yourself. Okay, Jesus sounds good. Right over your head. Do you catch what Jesus is saying? The most important commandment for you to live your life by, the thing that you need to tattoo on your neck, bumper sticker on your car, get on your binder, the thing that you want to tattoo on your eyelids so every time you close it, you see it, is love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, remember, everyone is valuable. Everyone is beautiful. Everyone deserves love. Everyone? Everyone. Even her? Especially her. Even him? Definitely him. Even that guy I hate? Yep. Even that teacher who gave me extra homework? Yep. Even my relative who did that thing? Yeah. Everybody. Everybody. It's deep. It's deep. I'm going to read you guys a story, and then we'll close. <clears throat> this is a story of Rachel Starr. This is what Rachel says. As a girl raised in a Christian home, I've never been inside a strip club in my life. Me neither. 
She said, but I felt this calling from God to reach out to women in the sex industry. I didn't really know how I was going to do this, but I knew that God had given me a passion for these women to know how much he loves them and how precious they are in his eyes. Still, I was definitely nervous to share the idea with others. I mean, going to a strip club isn't exactly typical for a church-raised girl. But whatever my doubts, I knew God was calling me to take action. He wanted more out of me than just having feelings of compassion for women in the sex industry. He wanted me to do something about it. I was in my early 20s in 2008 when I started a ministry called Scarlet Hope, which reaches out to women involved in the sex industry. We take big Southern comfort style dinners to strip clubs. Our prayer is that we're not just feeding their their stomachs, but we're feeding a deeper spiritual hunger. In some clubs, we fix hair and makeup so we can get some one-on-one time with the girls. It gives us the opportunity to pray with women in the middle of a strip club. How often does that happen? Through this ministry, I've seen hearts change and lives touched as many of these ladies have turned to Christ for forgiveness and a new beginning. Honestly, my heart and relationship with Jesus has also been drastically changed. I have seen Jesus show up many times in the back of a strip club dressing room. Many dancers have opened up to us, sharing their struggles, asking for prayer, and some have accepted an invitation to follow Jesus and have left the stripping industry. It's funny, but the dancers have taken to call us the church ladies. I've never thought I'd end up with such a traditional title doing radical work for God, but I think it's the kind of church lady God was calling me to become. My name is Rachel Starr, and I'm not a fan of Jesus. I'm a follower. It's so good, guys. This is a prime example of justice. Justice is going to the people that everyone looks at and says, well, they don't deserve help. Like, they, they're on their own. They're sinners. They're bad. They're too broken. They're too damaged. Guys, if Jesus is king, that changes everything. So this week, live in the light of the resurrection. Look for the people who are struggling and suffering and who need hope the people who are broken, the people who need love and life, you show them the hope that you have, the new hope that Jesus has made us alive and renewed us, and there's no fear of death, there's no hold of sin, and one day he's coming back to make everything new, and every tear will be wiped away, and every drop of pain will be gone. That's the hope I want to live for, and I hope you do too. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you. I just ask that you would drill this message into our hearts and help us to understand the power of the good news, the power of the gospel, the power in following you with our whole hearts. Lord, we have so much hope in the resurrection because of you. God, you're on the move. You're doing great things. We're not called to just hide out. I pray for this generation of students in this room that you will raise them up to do greater things than I have ever done in my life. I pray that you would raise them up to impact the kingdom, to lead people to Christ, and to live for your mission. God, we love you and we're so thankful. Help us to let go of our unbelief, to let go of false hopes. And if we're gonna cling on to something, help us to cling on to the hope of the resurrection. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen.